You're listening to audio from Trinity West Seattle. For other resources, more information about this sermon series, or to connect with us, visit our website, www.trinityws.com. I'm going to pray as we get into this together. Father, uh, as we come to you every week, we come to you needy. um, And this week in particular, we come to you just recognizing that we're people who are unclean, who are filthy, who need you to come clean us, heal us, and transform us. And as we look at these stories today, I pray that just what we see in them would be transformative for us. I pray that we would see you, Jesus, for who you truly are, the one who has all power and all authority, and that we would embrace that reality. In your name we pray, amen. Anybody a Simpsons fan here? No? Okay, there are like five Simpsons fans. Uh, maybe, maybe they've just exhausted everyone. I think they're like on season 31 or something at this point. But one of the most, uh, what would you say, What's considered to be one of the best Simpsons episodes of all time is Homer at the Bat. So you guys can go and check this one out. It's, it's pretty hilarious. I recently re-watched this one with our kids. And in, the, in this episode, the Springfield nuclear power plant where Homer works, their softball team is having a winning season. And they're going to go to the finals or to the championship game. And of course, the owner of the power plant, he's the town kind of resident evil guy, uh, Mr. Burns, he is dead set on winning this game for a few reasons. One, he's just, he wants to win all the time, but also he's, he's got a really high stakes bet that he has made that his team is going to win this game. And so he goes out and he gets nine of the best players from the major leagues to come and join his power plant softball team for this for this final game. And what's funny about this in a, in a lot of ways is just the fact that these major league players are kind of wandering around Springfield uh, waiting for this game to happen. And so they're just sort of in their uniforms engaging with people all throughout the town. And there's this one scene where Bart uh, and this kid named Ralph, who's kind of like the nerdy kid at school, they're picking teams for their playground baseball uh, game at school, right? Just like you've seen kids do this, you've probably done this before yourself. And Bart picks one kid, and then right about as Ralph the Nerd is about to pick his teammate, Ken Griffey Jr. walks by. (laughs) And he's like, I'm going to take Ken Griffey Jr. And so Ken Griffey Jr. is on his team. And then Bart picks another kid, and he's like, oh man. And, and then right as, he, as Ralph is about to pick his next teammate, Jose Canseco walks by, you know. And it, this goes on, of course, and Bart is left with a team of nine kids while Ralph has all of these nine major league baseball players for his playground game at school. And it's just like every kid's dream, right? It's amazing. And this ritual, this is why I'm telling you this story, this ritual of picking teams on a playground is something that most of us have experienced. Even if you haven't experienced that exact situation, you've probably experienced it at some point in your life in some other way. And maybe you were the person who was selected, and maybe you were the person who was rejected. 
See, the playground story is one that works itself out in all sorts of different contexts in our lives. It could have been for that job you applied for, or that relationship that you were pursuing with someone who you met online, or a leadership role at the church. All of these are examples of one of the greatest struggles that we have as human beings, and that is the struggle to belong. Whether that's in our family, it's in our work or or school, it's in our church or in the greater community we're a part of, whether it's even online, on social media, we spend so much time, so much emotional energy, and we experience so much joy and pain on the basis of our being accepted or rejected. And our deepest need, our deepest desire is ultimately to be declared accepted by God and have Him give us the honor of drawing near to Him. And that's at the heart of our text today. That's at the heart of these stories that we, re- we just heard read. The big idea is that Jesus became an outsider so that we could become insiders. Jesus became an outsider so that we could become insiders. And the context for these stories begins in uh, Matthew chapter 8, beginning in verse 1, where it said, when he came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. So Jesus has just wrapped up preaching the Sermon on the Mount, And we've just been told in the previous two verses, in chapter 7, verses 28 through 29, that uh, everyone who had heard the sermon was amazed by what he taught because he spoke with true authority, meaning that they could recognize that Jesus, through his teaching, is God in the flesh. And so he has authority to speak on God's behalf. But now as he has descended from that mountain where he preached powerful words, he's come down to perform powerful works. And that is what we're going to see in the coming chapters. And so today, we're going to look at three stories that show Jesus' ultimate authority as God with us, as the Son of God, and as the Messiah, the King of of the world, and we'll see that he doesn't just have authority to speak and give the word of God, he also has authority to do the work of God. And what's interesting is we're gonna see who he chooses as the subject of that work in these stories. Who does he choose? Well, mainly he chooses outcasts. He chooses outcasts, and he does more than just work on their behalf, he actually absorbs their reproach, their, their shame, uh, what, what has cast them out of the community. He takes it upon himself in order to heal and in order to welcome outsiders into his upside-down kingdom. So let's look at these stories now. Outcast story number one, I'm going to call the story of the filthy, okay? This is the story of the leper, and we saw it begin In verse 2, it said, And behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a proof to them. So who is 
Who is this character? Who is this person who is engaging with Jesus? It's a leper. And leprosy was sort of a junk drawer term in the ancient world that they would have used for a variety of different skin infections and diseases. In ancient medicine, they didn't really have a way of making a distinction between just eczema and, say, full-blown leprosy, as we would call it. And, but many of these diseases that would have been categorized this way, they could uh, be highly contagious, and that would be dangerous for the community, because when these diseases got bad, they got really, really bad. Here's uh, how one Bible scholar described it. He says, the disease, this is leprosy, gradually spread. So someone would get it in one part of their body, say a finger, and it would gradually spread. And then sensation ceased. So someone, say it happened in their finger, they would, they would lose sensation in that finger. And more and more parts of the anatomy became disfigured or fell off altogether. Sounds just grotesque, right? And the outcome of the disease was death. Never was there a disease that so separated victims from their fellows. Now, what he's talking about here is that in Jesus' day, skin disease wasn't just illness. It wasn't limited to that illness, but being a leper also made you ritually unclean, which is why the leper, when he comes to Jesus, he asks him to make him clean, not heal him, which sounds weird to us, right? That's because this uncleanness is very different from the way that we tend to think about uncleanness. Like we just think, oh, well, you just need some soap and a little elbow grease and you can get something clean. But this kind of unclean meant that you were unfit to be in the presence of God or his people. And so they made sure that if someone had leprosy, they got as far away from everyone else as possible. Lepers had to live outside the camp, they said, outside of the city walls, outside of the community, distant and away from everyone else. And if anyone from within the community went outside and they passed by one of those people, the leper had to shout, unclean, unclean, as a warning. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine having to do that? Some of you, I'm sure, can. Uh, I, I know I can to, to an extent. A few weeks ago, I got COVID. And, uh, and that's why I say some of you can, because I'm guessing some of you have experienced this. The CDC guidelines suggested that uh, if that happened and you were the only person in your family who had it, that you would quarantine, right? And so I did that. I, I got my phone and my books and my laptop, and I went up into the bedroom upstairs all by myself, and I went outside the camp, if you will, okay? I went outside of the city walls to that bedroom for several days until Eli, my son, tested positive, and then he joined me in the room. And then a couple, like maybe even 24 hours later, uh, Emily tested positive, and we're like, this is totally futile. I don't know why we're even doing this anymore. Um, and our girls never got it. But anyway, we, we decided that the quarantine thing was over at that point. And you may have experienced something like that or similar to that in the past couple of years, that feeling of isolation, that feeling of being an outcast. 
But obviously my quarantine is very different from what one of these lepers would have gone through back in Jesus' day, right? They didn't have phones. They couldn't text their family and say, hey, I need some more food or some more water. They couldn't join that work via video conference, that, that work meeting. They were completely removed and completely alone. This had to have been not only extremely painful, but shameful to be isolated, outcast from society. And even if you can't relate to the leper on a social level, you can definitely relate on a spiritual level, which is what we see going on here. All of us are infected with sin, which stains our conscience. And if we're honest, we should all be walking around constantly saying, unclean, unclean, right? Sin separates us from one another. It separates us from God. And just like that vivid picture that we read from that Bible scholar describing that leprous disease eating away at someone's body, sin is incessantly contagious and it's fatal. It will kill you. And so like this leper, or sorry, so this leper, he he risks total rejection. And he comes to the teacher who just spoke on that mountaintop with power. And the leper shows his allegiance to Jesus. He he gets on his knees in total surrender. And he he calls Jesus, Lord, Lord. And he comes to Jesus believing that he is God in the flesh. And so he comes with no question whether Jesus could heal. Question is, would he? Would he heal? And the leper's request is essentially, thy will be done. It's, it's, he casts himself on the will of Jesus. He says, if you will You can make me clean. I know you can do it. Will you? And what we see is that this leper's faith is not contingent on Jesus doing for him what he asks. His faith is asking. Sorry, his asking is contingent on his faith. His faith is not contingent on Jesus doing what he asks. His asking is contingent on his faith. And so Jesus says, yes, yes, I will. I do will. You are clean, showing that Jesus has ultimate authority to cleanse and to heal. But he doesn't just do this action with a word. He could do it. He could just speak the words and the man would be healed. The man would be clean. But what does Jesus do? Verse 3, he reaches out and he touches him. He touches him. In a sense, he makes the man clean by bearing his uncleanness. Because to touch an unclean person was to contract their defilement yourself. And so we see that Jesus, he comes and and he touches the filthiest parts of our lives. And he transforms them. He changes them. And friends, this side of Jesus' cross and his resurrection, we know that it's through Jesus' blood 
that we are cleansed from all sin. And so are you living in light of Jesus' cleansing power today? Are you experiencing his cleansing power today? Is there any part of your life where your sin is separating you from others or from God and you're just hanging on to it? You're going, there's no way that God could clean this up. This is just too much of a mess. I'm too filthy. Those, those things that I've done, those things that were done to me, too broken, too dirty. Friend, there is nothing. There is nothing that you have done and there is nothing that you can do that is beyond Jesus' cleansing power. That's the good news today. And more than that, you don't have to clean yourself up before you come to him. Did you notice that in that story? Did you notice the leper didn't get all his stuff squared away so that he could come to Jesus? He came to Jesus to get himself squared away. He couldn't do anything about his leprosy. He was helpless. He couldn't cleanse himself. And likewise, as we come to Jesus for the first time, maybe that's you today, you're going to come to Jesus for the first time. Or for many of, of us here, for the millionth time, even as we come here and worship him today, we come filthy, surrendering, and asking that he would make us clean. And what's so amazing is that his answer is always yes. It's always yes. And so Jesus cleanses this leper. He heals him, and then he tells him to go. But he, he warns the, the guy. He says, don't go telling everybody about this. And why? Because he knows that if people find out what he's up to, Jesus is going to get murdered, which is exactly what ends up happening. But he does say to go to the priest and make a sacrifice that, that was required for the Jews at the time. Why does he say to do that? Verse 4, as a proof as a proof, basically as a way of showing that the leper is now fit to return to society. He's getting brought back into the community once again. It's amazing. But this word proof can also mean a testimony or a witness, which means that we, when Jesus makes us clean, we testify as well. We bear witness to who he is and what he has done for us. So that's outcast story number one. Outcast story number two, I'm going to call the powerful. Very different type of character than the first one that we looked at. This story began in verse five. When he entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. 
When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, Truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And to the centurion, Jesus said, Go. Let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed in that very moment. This is a story about a powerful man. He's a powerful man. He's a centurion. And a centurion was an officer in the Roman army who would have had around 100 uh, soldiers under his command. That's why, hence the, the Latin prefix, centi, like centimeter, right? Same sort of a thing. And by the way, I just got to pull aside here for a second and give you a really funny Greek fun fact. The word for 100 in Greek is hecaton. And so this guy oversaw a hecaton of soldiers, if you want to remember it that way, okay? Just a little nerd thing. Okay, but keep in mind, these soldiers that he oversaw, they were Roman soldiers. And so the centurion uh, would have been both feared and hated by the Jewish community. In some ways, he represents this oppression that the Jews cannot get themselves out from under. In some ways, he represents worldly power, aversion to God, even in some ways, paganism. And yet this is the guy who calls Jesus Lord. This is the guy who comes on behalf of someone who is beneath him in order to alleviate their suffering. He doesn't come in power, though. He comes in humility. He comes in need. He literally says to Jesus, I'm not worthy to have you come into my house. And the fact is, that's not false humility. Not only was this statement true because Jesus is king and, and Lord, so he's, this guy's not worthy in that sense, but even if Jesus were just an ordinary Jew, he would have been discouraged from entering the home of a non-Jew, a, a Gentile. Why? Because just like lepers, they were considered unclean. See a pattern here? There's a pattern in these stories. But the centurion comes and he sees Jesus' ultimate glory and authority despite his own unworthiness. And so the centurion sees that it's not his own worthiness that leads Jesus to act on his behalf. Rather, he casts himself upon Jesus' kindness and favor. And he trusts him to bridge the gap created by his own uncleanness. He trusts Jesus to bridge the gap. And Jesus heals his servant just as the man requests. And then Jesus commends the centurion's faith, which was especially noticeable because this dude isn't even a Jew, right? And, and he commends his, his faith and he gives meaning to what just happened in this transaction. He, he gives meaning to it through an illustration we saw in verse 11, he describes eternity as a joyful feast with God, 
where we get to sit at his table with him and with the family of faith. It's incomprehensibly full of joy. This is like the biggest privilege and honor that anyone could ever imagine. And though this outsider, this Roman, this this Gentile, this non-Jew is brought in, Jesus says those who thought they were in, those who thought that they deserved to be at the table, they are cast out. Why? Well, the Jews who were listening to Jesus telling this story, this, giving this illustration, they would have been super offended because they would have expected that a Jew would have special access to God simply by their ethnic association. After all, they've got all these great uh, you know, pillars of the faith in their family. They've got Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So they would have thought, man, my inheritance It's secure simply by the way of their family lineage, simply because of their ethnic heritage. They would have actually considered themselves, as Jesus uses this language, sons of the kingdom, people who are going to inherit the kingdom of God, people who are a part of eternal life in the family of God, simply by their birth. And they would have also had ethnic superiority. They would have seen themselves as better than the other people groups on planet Earth because of this. But Jesus was showing here that the family of God is not bound by bloodlines. It's not bound by bloodlines. The family of God is no longer just Jewish. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are in the family not because of their ethnicity, but because of their faith. And likewise, we come into the family of God not by our ethnicity, not by our social status, not by our class, not by our moral standing or anything else, but by faith. It's not our family or our bloodline, but the blood of Jesus that reconciles us to God. This is good news. And he brings us then into his unified, multi-ethnic, worldwide family. And so if you're a Christian, you now have more in common with a Christian across the globe than you do with that unbelieving uncle that lives right here in Seattle. This is amazing. And so this centurion is brought in not by his family, but by his faith. He has faith that Jesus can heal. And he asks, and Jesus does heal, which is just amazing. And we still believe that this happens today. This is still true today. Jesus does heal. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? We can ask Jesus to cleanse us today, and he will. We've already said that. But we can also ask Jesus to heal us today, and he will. Now, of course, he doesn't always heal us Immediately, and this is what is so difficult to navigate. This is where things get kind of complex and, and can be a struggle for Christians. Sometimes we have to wait. Sometimes, yes, Jesus says yes to us today, but that yes is kind of like a deposit for the future. It's sort of a, yeah, I'm going to heal you, but you're going to have to wait. 
And maybe you're going to have to wait till a later time in your life, in this life. But maybe you're going to have to wait till the life to come. When you get a new resurrected body that is free from sin, from suffering, from pain, from illness, it's going to be incredible. Jesus is making all things new. And so sometimes he heals us today, immediately when we ask, as a glimpse of that future. But what we can't do when we hear stories like this one that we've just read is we can't make the mistake that a lot of Christians do and and believe that you just need to have enough faith and Jesus will heal you. A lot of Christians believe that today. The measure of our faith does not control Jesus' power. You need to know that. The measure of our faith does not control Jesus' power. A number of years ago, uh, in a church that I was pastoring, there was a young man named Eugene. He was only about 26 years old. And to all of our shock, he was diagnosed with terminal cancer, brain cancer. And his battle with cancer was very, very brief. I think it was only about six months or so. And the whole time, that whole six months, Eugene was at peace. He was at, he was at total peace. He was resolved. He was trusting God. He knew that his present life was in God's hand, and he knew that his eternal life was in God's hands. He didn't seem to be afraid at all. In fact, Those of us who were around him at the time were probably more fearful than he was, and he was the one who was dying. Now, the doctors performed one surgery to remove a tumor, but there were bits that they were unable to get to. And so Eugene went in a second time, and they had to remove so much of his brain that he never recovered. He he was brain dead as soon as that surgery was over. And he was living, being kept alive by machines. He had said very explicitly that he didn't want to be kept alive with machines. His family agreed with that. And I had the, the pain and the privilege of being in the hospital praying with that family when they received that news. And... Not only was his wife there and a lot of his extended family, but his mom was also there. And she was there with her pastor. And so I'm praying with this group of people. Her pastor's there kind of with us as well, mainly trying to uh, pastor Eugene's mother. And while everyone in the room was in tears, having just received this news, right? Everyone's just trying to grapple with the fact that Eugene is gone, We have lost him. This pastor, he stood up and he rebuked everyone for not having enough faith. He said, if you had had enough faith, Eugene would be okay. Can you imagine that? You're still reeling because you've just lost your husband or your son or your friend or your brother. You're reeling and this pastor is telling you that it's because You didn't have enough faith. I mean, it's absolute poison. I was so mad. I just just started rebuking him and and (laughs) 
correcting him. He was speaking a different language that I didn't understand, so I was doing all this through an interpreter and stuff. It was kind of crazy, but I was so angry. This is not how healing works, friends. Yes, we pray, and in faith we ask God to heal. But our faith doesn't make God heal. It just doesn't. And the weakness of our faith doesn't make God not heal, right? That's not how it works. Yes, we've got to come to Jesus with some measure of faith, and Jesus can heal all who do have faith. But believing in his power and authority doesn't require him to act on that power and authority according to our exact wishes. True faith, when we have true faith, it leads us to trust him and to cast ourselves upon his good will, not our own. Even Jesus prayed, not my will, but yours be done, right? That was a prayer of faith. And so we can't get hung up on these misconceptions about faith and and healing because they're not what the Bible teaches. But we also can't get hung up on them because we're actually, when we do, we miss the whole point of this story that we've just read. What's the point? This is a story of reversals. Just as the leper became clean through means that would normally have made Jesus unclean, This Roman, this unclean Gentile, is an outsider who Jesus makes into an insider. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. So that's outcast story number two. Now let's look at the final story, outcast story number three. I'm going to call this one the vulnerable. Beginning in verse 14, when Jesus entered Peter's house, He saw his mother-in-law lying sick with a fever. He touched her hand, and the fever left her, and she rose and began to serve him. That evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons, and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. Friends, the good news here is that Jesus isn't just interested in healing all the big stuff like we saw with a leper and a paraplegic, right? Big, big stuff. But he's also concerned with things as small as a fever. And he wants to heal. And though Peter's mother-in-law wasn't necessarily an outcast here, right? Many of the others who we see in this part of the text were. We heard about people who were Uh, oppressed by demons. See, just as we uh, read that those without faith, just in the previous story, those without faith are going to be cast out into the outer darkness in the next life, we learn here that we can be plagued with inner darkness in this life. That there's a spiritual war going on between light and darkness today. In our own lives and even our bodies are sometimes the battlegrounds. And so these evil spirits, they're called demons. They, they come to us so that they can lie to us and oppress us and inflict, inflict pain upon us and hopefully convince us to inflict pain upon ourselves and onto others. That's how they work. And we're going to get into demonic stuff 
in a couple weeks. There's a huge story later on in this chapter of Matthew. So I'm going to save most of that for a future time. But for now, what we have to see is that those plagued by evil spirits are people who in Jesus' day would have been considered, you guessed it, unclean. Unclean. And therefore, they would have been outcast from society. And yet, despite the power of these evil spirits, these, these demons, we see here that Jesus has total authority and power over them. But just as we saw with the leper, in order to cleanse and in order to heal, Jesus actually draws near to these people who by society standards were absolutely repulsive. Think about the people who might fit into that category today. We don't tend to think about people in terms of, oh, is that you know, an evil spirit that's oppressing that person? But in many cases, people who are uh, struck with addiction, uh, homelessness, severe poverty, and, and just severe depths of sin and cycles of brokenness in their life that, that they're stuck in. These are people who, by our society standards, are repulsive, and yet Jesus shows here, he shows the love of God to the unlovable. And that's what he does today. Think about how different this view of God is from common misconceptions about God. Think about this. Jesus, through Jesus, God reveals that he's not some sort of you know, distant deity who has no involvement with what's going on down here. He's not like some God who created everything like some sort of complex wind-up toy and then he just sort of set it on its course so he could go kick it up in heaven on his lounge chair. That's not what's going on. We see in Jesus that God proves he has always been and he will always be not only infinitely powerful, but intimately involved. Jesus is at work in the here and the now in the deepest, darkest parts of our lives. It said in this uh, prophecy from Isaiah 53, 4, it said that he bore our diseases, which is actually not only talking about what's happening here, but it's a foreshadowing of what Jesus would do on the cross. That he not only bore these diseases that we've heard about today and more, these things that are effects of sin in the world, but he also bore the greatest disease of sin itself. And not in some you know, abstract, kind of conceptual, theological way. As we see in these stories, he very tangibly said he touched them, right? He very practically took these things upon himself and got his hands dirty. Jesus became an outsider so we could become insiders, friends. This is the good news. This is the good news. Jesus healed these outsiders not only so they could be relieved of their suffering, but so they could be brought in. Their healing was like a doorway into Jesus' upside-down kingdom. And friend, the, the truth of the gospel is that all of us, everyone, is an outsider 
in the kingdom of God. And the only way for us to become insiders is for Jesus to actually trade us places. He trades us places. His power for our weakness. His perfection for our sinfulness. His privilege for our marginalization. His honor for our shame. This is good news. I hope that you'll receive it today. And as you get together with your community groups this week, I I hope that these questions will help spark some good conversation that will help you to apply these truths. How has Jesus already cleansed, healed, and brought you into his upside-down kingdom? So just look to the past. Maybe tell some stories of ways in which God has worked in your life already. In what ways do you need him to do that work today? Maybe you need to pray with your community group specifically for healing Or there's some kind of sin that you're carrying around with you, some kind of shame that you just need to confess and receive Jesus' cleansing, forgiving power. And then third question, who is outside that you need to reach to bring in? Let's pray and we'll respond to God together. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the truths that we've just seen so wonderfully, so beautifully expressed through the life of Jesus. God, if there's anybody who's hearing this, anyone who's present in this room right now who has come today as an outsider, someone who doesn't know you, I pray that today they would make that exchange and they would come inside and they would come to know you. They would bring their filthiness. They would bring their weakness. They would bring all that is broken in their lives and come into your kingdom. If there's anyone who isn't an outsider but feels like one, I pray that today would be a day where they can recognize that they belong. And for all of us, God, we pray that we would come to you in faith. We need to come to you in faith when we ask you to cleanse us. We need to come to you in faith when we ask you to heal us. And if there's someone here today who is suffering from some physical ailment or brokenness, I pray as well that they would come today in faith and receive healing. All these things, God, we just we want to see them happen, not only so that we can have joy and, and get to experience this glimpse of the future, but also so that you can get the glory that you deserve. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. You've been listening to audio from Trinity West Seattle. For more information about our services or to connect with us, visit our website, www.trinityws.com. Thanks for listening.